invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, you've got a long time to find it, because I found some interesting things that I wanted to share with you. As you approach uh, the narrative of the flood that's recorded in Genesis, um, if we're going to set the record straight, the first thing we have to do is answer the most common question about the flood. The most common question is, did God really send a global flood to destroy all life on the planet except those on the ark. Um, You know, if you begin to research global disasters in history, you can find a lot of things, but no one is saying that there was a global flood. Uh, People talk about all kinds of really interesting things that may or may not have happened because they are theory. These are all what you call prehistory. So history is that that mankind has recorded about himself and his experience. And so things that are prehistory are things that happened before mankind was writing it down and recording it and saying what happened or at least drawing pictures on caves. We need something for mankind to know exactly what happened before that than it is what we call prehistory. And so we know that a lot of scientists believe that a massive asteroid struck the earth. Um, it's blamed for the death of the dinosaurs, but also you know, uh, blotting out most of the sun's rays under the earth, creating an ice age. Um, and definitely people believe that sort of thing. If you continue to comb through the, the archives of, of history, you see that there, at one time uh, scientists say that there was a massive uh, volcano in the South Pacific Sea that was, that's over there in the, the Japan-Philippine region, that when it erupted, uh, the eruption was so significant that between the, the actual explosion and, and the cloud that, that, that darkened the earth, that the human race got down to maybe a few thousand people living uh, either in North Africa or right in that area, which would also be some of the other places we think life might have began. Um, and, and so the genetic record actually shows like a bottleneck, a shrinking down of the variety of DNA uh, that was uh, around on the earth at that time and then almost, almost like another primal pair or another kind of explosion of, of, of population on the earth again. Now, neither of those two things, the asteroid or the, the, the volcano, can actually be totally proven because, again, it is pre-history. There's something that happened somewhere, but it, it is definitely pre-history. Think back to all that you've read and heard about the asteroid hitting the earth and, and killing, uh, killing all the dinosaurs. Where did it land? Show me the hole. Um, there's some interesting things that, that there's, there's, I guess you'd say there's certain evidence that is missing uh, for that. When you search specifically for floods, uh, scientists continue to find evidence of floods, like large floods, but in every kind of region around the world. Um, and also, what we begin to see is that if you, if you search for floods, uh, what, what history will tell you or what you can find is that the most significant flood happened in the 1940s in China. Have you all ever heard about that? And I think it was 1943, the Yellow River flooded. Um, and, and then China reports that 4 million people died from that flood. Now, this was the time that China was becoming communist, and they killed a lot of people for a lot of reasons anyway, but that's the report, is that 4 million people died um, in that flood, the Yellow River flood, so to speak. Um, and and the, the scope of that flood is devastating, but it still isn't global, um, and, and you really don't see anything that would say that there was, a, there was a global flood. History isn't recording it. Science, scientists aren't saying it. But they are saying other things that a flood could explain. 
the, the, the temperatures dropping around the earth, well, if there's no land for the sun to heat up, wouldn't that drop some temperatures? When people say ice age and glaciers slowly dragging across the ground and doing things, what geologists have found is that a lot of water in a short period of time can do the same thing as a little bit of water over millions or billions of years. And so what, what is a very possible and likely answer is that instead of some of the events that science says this happened and this happened and this happened and this caused this and that, that maybe the flood caused some of these things. And so when we look at Genesis, one thing that you have to understand is that until Genesis chapter 12, everything is on a global scope. God didn't just make Israel or didn't just make Canaan. He created the world. It says that he created the world, the stars. I mean, this is not just global. This is actually universal in scope. And so that's the idea. When you get to the Tower of Babel, that was supposedly all mankind then separating and splitting up at that particular time. So in the middle of that is the flood, and certainly we're looking at it as a global event. Jesus refers back to... Creation, the flood, and the second coming, and, and puts them all in, in a group. And we know the second coming is going to be a global thing because now there are Christians all over the world, and that second coming is going to affect Christians and non-Christians all over the world. So what we're seeing is a global event. Um, I believe, personally, that there is enough information to say absolutely there was a flood. I, the, the truth is, when you look at Scripture, we believe as Southern Baptists that it is truth without any mixture of error. And so if, if you start mixing in error, if you have to start editorializing God's word, who's smart enough to do that? And so I believe what the Bible says that there was a global flood. Once we get to that point, we have to start looking at, at some other evidences that are around that maybe this actually did happen. Um, any culture that's old enough has a story of a flood that nearly wipes out humanity. Um, without going into all of them, I will mention one. Uh, in the ancient Near East, there's the story of Gilgamesh. It's an epic uh, poem is, is how it comes down to us, and it describes a flood account that has a lot of the same details as the biblical account. So Gilgamesh tells the story of a hero uh, who saved both man and gods. His name is some Mesopotamian name that I can't say, so for our purposes, his name is Hero. Um, so this, this hero um, is, is living in a time when Earth's population had expanded, and the gods heard the noise of humans, and they were annoyed. And so they decided that they were going to start a storm, and it was going to wipe out all of mankind. But one goddess, her name was Ea, E-A, she decided to tell Gilgamesh, told him not to tell, or not Gilgamesh, that's not his name, but the hero, tried to tell the hero, hey, this is going to happen, build a boat, um, but don't tell anyone else. So secretly he builds a boat that actually in the story would have been larger than the ark that Noah built. Um, so he builds this boat, the problem, and he loads it up with animals, and, and everyone else dies. All the animals die, all the other people die, everything else dies. Uh, but when the flood actually comes, the, the, the storm is so savage that it even scares the gods. See, they're not in control of the storm. They could start it, but they could not control it. The ship in this story lands on a mountain, and after that, uh, the hero gets out and gives makes sacrifices that um, uh, because the gods are starved of sacrifices, because they need sacrifices to survive, they're swarming those sacrifices like flies. That's kind of the, the picture that you get. And so this, this Gilgamesh story definitely has a lot of similarities to the Genesis account. 
you know, there's a boat. There's a hero who saves, you know, mankind by being on the boat. Um, he is warned by a supernatural being. All life is destroyed. Um, he also uses birds to, on reconnaissance missions after the storm is over to find land and things like that and make sacrifices afterwards. But it's the differences that are really striking. In the Genesis story, the flood was righteous judgment on sinful humans. It was mankind's sin that led God to flood the earth. But in the Gilgamesh story, it's kind of a random thing where the gods are annoyed with the noise that mankind is making. In the Genesis story, God warned the whole world. But in this Gilgamesh story, one goddess tells one person and that's, that's it. And so it's really interesting. Uh, the storm uh, in the, the Genesis story is completely under the control of God. But in the Gilgamesh story, this storm rages out of control. It scares even the gods. In the Genesis story, God is completely independent of man. He does not need mankind. If Noah had not found favor in the eyes of God, God could have wiped out the whole earth and been none the lesser for it. But these goddesses and gods, they needed mankind. Now, if you were to look at the two stories and say, which one is an invention of mankind, what's more like us? To imagine a God that is independent, that doesn't need us, that judges us for our sins, or gods that are like us because they're capricious in their nature and they need us. We had to save the gods. What's more like a man story? We put ourselves at the center of everything, right? So that does seem much more like a man story. It's a fanciful tale. It's long. It's an epic poem. And normally when you look at history, the simpler, more precise story is the true story. The, the Genesis flood account is simple. It's precise. It gives details. It gives locations. That is almost certainly, not almost certainly, it is God's word. So it is the true thing. So now I believe that it's, it's, it's safe for us to say there's enough evidence to say yes, there was a global flood. So then we have to start asking a couple more questions. One, why was this flood sent? And then two, what does it mean for us today? So those, I think, are the questions that we have to really ask ourselves. So the sermon in the sentence is this. No matter what judgment he has sent on the earth, God has always found a way to show mercy to his followers. So now I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 22. That's the whole chapter uh, and, and then we'll, we'll get into this. And, and Every thought, every intention, every move of the heart, every choice was evil all the time, continually. And so that is, that is what God is seeing. Is it's not just what they're doing. It's deep down in their core. It's what they think. It's what they believe. It's who they are. They are evil down in their nature. And that is why God was striking out against them. Now, um, where we start getting into some questions, and these are some interesting questions that people like to talk about. Who are the sons of God? The, I found three very popular answers, and, and we'll talk about those pretty quick. Um, but who are they? The narrator who, who is writing this, we believe it was Moses, assumes that everybody's going to know who the sons of God were and who the daughters of, uh, or yeah, who, who the sons of God, the daughters of man were. So, so. But we don't know exactly who they are. So here are some ideas. One, the sons of God, uh, the sons of God were princes or aristocrats. They were they were great men. They were kings. They were early rulers. And what they did was basically they had harems, just like kings did in those days. 
and they, they introduced, or not introduced, but kind of really propagated the polygamy in the earth just to, to have and to be greedy and to bring all of that kind of stuff in. Now, this is a view that was very popular, and it's kind of passed away. Um, it, one of the advantages is it, it, it removes the difficulty that people have because the sons of God, a lot of people think it's angels. And so it simplifies it in, in that way. Um, but the weakness is, basically, uh, while a king would be called a son of God or a child of God, there's never a point where groups of kings and things like that are called children of God or sons of God, things like that. It, it doesn't really keep with the way that that term would have been used all along. The second one, definitely the most intriguing one, um, is that the sons of God, gods are, are the sons of God are fallen angels. Uh, demons, evil spirits that have come down to earth and they have, they have intermingled with the, um, with the human race and they had babies and they were giants. And, and you hear people say that a lot of times as, as they, they look into this, that's, that's what they kind of think. But it's important to, to notice that it says that these sons of God um, married women of, of men or daughters of men. The main support for this view is that the Old Testament does use this expression, sons of God, it does use this expression for angels. The main thing against this is that Jesus said angels don't marry. And this explicitly says that these, these sons of God married the daughters of men. So it wasn't just an intermingling, it was a marriage, it was a, it was a change. Um, and then the other thing is, if, if this is the problem, that sons of God or angels or demons or whatever you want to call them married, you know, daughters of men, the daughters of men, the only real thought they had is that they were beautiful. And it was the, the demons that came in and brought the evil into the world. Why would God then punish mankind and the animal kingdom and all that if it was actually an angel or a supernatural being that came down and, and, and made this thing? So it doesn't fit with the, the, the judgment that God actually put down. Um, that there really isn't a whole lot of, of actual evidence um, for this. Now, yes, the innocent suffer when the guilty commit sins. That's true. But probably the best answer here, the sons of God were the godly men, the descendants of Seth. And when they began to intermingle and marry the descendants of Cain, that began to be uh, a, a very negative thing for the people that were following God because... As we looked in Genesis 4 and 5, what happened is the, the, the line of Seth, and Seth was the replacement for Abel. If you remember, Cain killed Abel. Seth was the replacement, and his line followed after God. When we looked in the generations of Seth, you had, you had people begin to call out on the name of the Lord. You had music. You had, you had things that were toward worship of the Lord. When you looked at the line of Cain and the things that came from the line of Cain, you saw a lot of negative and worldly things came from the line of Cain. And so these lines had been separate. But if that's what this means, is that the lines of Ab or the lines of Seth and the line of Cain began to intermarry, that would then speak to what was going on here and what the problem was. It would also help us to understand that or why God would be angry and why God would punish mankind. Because you had the holy ones that were walking after him, and the unholy ones who had walked away from him now joining hands. Joining hands. So like the church joining hands with the world, that would be an abomination and that would lead to God's judgment. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So the sin then would be a forbidden union, a yoking together of what God intended to keep apart. You know, it's like a, a believer marrying an unbeliever. That is, that is precisely what it is like. And so now there's, there's really, 
you can't be absolutely certain that that's what this means. And so we approach it with humility. But I would say that whatever it does mean, the fault lies with mankind. It lies with our sin nature and our sinful activities. I believe that's where it lies. So another really fun thing here, you get into a lot of biblical legends and myths and things like that, you have to deal with the Nephilim. What are the Nephilim? Um, when you look at it, it, it can be translated giant. And some translations do say and there were giants on the earth at, at that time. But the word technically means fallen ones. And that's technically what it means. When we look, the Nephilim, and, and that's, probably, that's probably, even though that's what it technically means, that's probably not what it is. But it may not necessarily be giants either. What we see is the Nephilim, although they're in this conversation between the sons of God and the daughters of men, they are not the offspring of, of the sons of God, the daughters of men. They were there before. It says that they are there after. Now, when we look at what the rest of you know, Hebrew history tells us, what we see is that the Jewish people, when they went to scout out, remember, they, they, when they left Egypt, they went to scout out the land. They said they were giants. And yes, there were some giants, but another thing is that you know, Jewish people on average are a little bit shorter than some others, even some others that live in the Middle East. And so to them, all of them were tall in stature. They were all larger. Now, I did not, I've never been to Vietnam. But one of the things that you read when you hear veterans actually talk about it was the difference in size between your average American man and your average uh, Vietnamese man. And, and just the fact that, that they appeared to be giants towards them. And, and that was the same kind of imagery that the, the Jews were trying to convert, the, the ten spies that didn't trust God, they were trying to convey to the, to the host of Israel, they're bigger than we are. They're stronger than we are. They're renowned. They have all of this, this kind of... Um, I guess you would say, uh, strength and physical advantage over us. So the Nephilim were probably just a type of people that were bigger. But it also says they were men of renown. That literally means men of the name. Now, normally when you hear the name in Scripture, it is referring to the name of the Lord. So they may have been God worshipers. They may have been worshipers of Yahweh. So it's kind of interesting. I do not believe that they were giants. I believe that they were ordinary men, but they may have just been taller uh, than, than um, like Moses and, and, and who was actually writing this from their perspective. They may have just been taller, bigger people than that. So... <coughs> Now let's get into what was actually wrong. So in Genesis chapter 3 and, 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 and chapter 4, it says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his uh, days shall be 120 years. And then, um, it, it, then it talks about uh, in, um, well, I'm, I'm actually on the wrong verses. In, in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart uh, of his heart were only evil continually. Um, when we look at this, this sin that, that man has is, it is a nature sin. It is a deep down sin. Everything that he does always is sin. Now do let me address verse 3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is um, uh, he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. I've pretty much always heard this taught that you won't live over 120 years old. Well, the intriguing part about this is that there are people in Genesis after the flood even that lived more than 120 years. Um, 
Based on what this says and then based on the way the narrative plays out, it is very, very likely that this means that from the point that God made this decision, it was 120 years until the flood happened. Because it took Mo or not Moses, Noah, roughly 100 years to build the ark. And so that seems to be a more likely explanation. Now, we do see that people don't live more than 120 years. Uh, but in this particular case, it seems like God is saying, I'm going to strive with for 120 years. And we know that, that Noah did not just build an ark, but he was also a preacher of righteousness. He was striving with the people to believe, but they rejected him and they did not listen. And so that does seem to, to kind of hold weight as far as all that goes. So God did not continue to strive with these people. So um, when we look at the reason for the flood, why did God send this flood? There's two things about man's sin that, that is pretty specific. It is extensive and it is intensive. So the extensiveness is it's in every scheme of man. It wasn't like every now and then he did something bad and every now and then he did something good. Every scheme of man was evil. Every scheme of man. Now, I'm an only child. And there is a reason for that. Because every scheme that I had as a baby was only evil always. My mother will tell you this. You get her to talking about some of the things I did as a toddler. Like this kind of table right here, this would be a target for me. I almost knocked this, this, this flower over anyway. But I would get there, and then she would know. And, and like my grandmother said that, that my mother like always sat on the screen. Because as soon as she would sit down, I'd go to a table. And I would actually like position my hands. And so then when she would spring up to come stop me from raking, then I just rake it right off the table. I was just the devil. And then um, I was really bad about locking her out of the house. We lived in Sarah Land, which is just north of Mobile, if you know where that is. And my mom is, is very, very country, and that was too much city for her. And so we, when we would go outside, I could lock the door and lock us out. And a lot of times she didn't have, you know, a, a key with her, so I'd lock her out, and I'd laugh, and just it would just be the funnest thing in the world. So her sister lived in Mobile, and um, so when she was over one time, I locked them all out. And she thought it was hilarious until she realized, well, there's no key, so we've got to go get his dad at work to even let us in. And that was, there was a reason I was an only child. I was, I was that kind of thing. And so that, and there were some geese that lived in that backyard that also thought I was the devil. Because I chased them around with sticks and things like that. And so it wasn't just everything that, that, that they did, but it was also the intensity of it. It was the depth of evil. It wasn't, it wasn't. They're just trying to, you know, get something dishonest. Like, it was violence. It was taking whatever they want by violence. God continues, continues to mention corruption, and he continues to mention violence. We'll talk about that word corruption in just a moment. Um, but what, what is being said here is that, that mankind was um, constantly evil. He was completely evil, and he was totally evil. All of these words together are put there. And it seems redundant, but God is being clear. There was no choice. There was no choice. There was no redeeming aspect of mankind at this time. And that is why he had to choose what he chose. Now, when we look at what it says in verse 6, the Lord regretted. In some translations, they actually make it the Lord repented. Now, what we know about repentance is that's something we're supposed to do. And we associate that with sin. God is associating it with a change. God is changing. He was for man, and because of man's sin and because of their depravity, 
He is now against man. So it is, is a change. So it's not, it's not repent as in God sinned when he made mankind. It is repent as in he was for them, he was striving for them, and now he will not. He will change. And so that is what that means when it says that God has changed or that God has turned away, that he has he is, um, regretted what he's doing. And it did grieve God because it was the crown jewel of his creation, and it had turned completely and totally against him. So what we see in Genesis chapter 7 is that God had decided to eliminate the problem, to, to, to cut it out at the root. The problem was mankind, so he was going to cut it out at the root. Now, when you look at it, every beast, every, every bird, all these things are going to die. And it just serves to remind us that innocent victims always suffer when judgment falls on the guilty. Sin is destructive, period. People sometimes ask, well, why do innocent suffer? Sin is destructive. It is destructive and it always will be destructive. This is a telling commentary on the disastrous effects of the wrong marriage. But I would also say it is a telling commentary on the disastrous effects of the people of God joining hands with the people of the world. We do it all too often. And it is disastrous. It has led God to destroy the world one time. It is not a light thing for us as the people of God to enter into partnership with the people of the world. That is disastrous. And God has destroyed the world for it before. So we need to remember that. So the simple answer to our question, why did it happen, uh, is the sin of mankind had become so great that God could no longer endure it. As patient as God is, he could not be patient with that any longer. He had to bring it to an end. And so then the second part of this, from, from really from verse 8 on, we see favor and we see salvation. God has shown favor. Who did he show favor to? Well, in verse 8 it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a short verse, but it really matters for you and me. Because without that verse, you know, I guess everything would grow back eventually, but probably not us. So you would have just a green world with nobody on it if it wasn't for Noah finding favor in the eyes of God. So the question that we'll ask is, what does the reality of the flood mean for us today? So we, we believe it happened. We understand that it happened because of sin. But what does it mean for us today? So let's try to get into that. So despite the general sin and corruption of the world, uh, Noah was the tenth removed, or the tenth generation from Adam. Uh, and it says that he found favor in the eyes of God. Now that's a formal expression. We just went through um, Esther, and Esther found favor in the eyes of Xerxes. And, and what that meant is that someone that didn't deserve it received favor from somebody in great authority. And so that's what that means there. So it does say that Noah was just. Um, that he was righteous. It says um, that, that he was a uh, blameless man. Now, you read all those things, and it sounds like perfect the way we mean perfect, but that's not what it means. It just means that he followed after God. Noah would have made mistakes. Noah would have sinned. But he also would have done what he was supposed to do. He would, have, he would have repented, and at that time he probably would have made sacrifices, and he would have restored his relationship with God and moved on, and he would have, as we're talking about Sunday school, go and sin no more. He would have tried to avoid those sins in the future. Noah was that kind of man. So again, he wasn't perfect, but in the sense that we think perfect, like never sinned, like Jesus, but he was perfect in the sense that you couldn't blame him because he would go and he would do the things that he needed to do to make sure that he didn't do it again and that he was then in right standing with God. So that's what that means for him. If you look at what God says, um, and, and, and I will point out that there are, there, in this story, there are several times that, that God speaks and Noah doesn't talk back. 
Noah doesn't say, are you sure you want me to build a boat? Are you sure? Because I don't know what rain is. Like, or do we really want to do this? Noah never does any of that. Like, he just, whatever God says, that he just goes about and does it. And that's very impressive. So, um, when God speaks, Noah listens and obeys. So, in, in verse 11 and verse 12, God talks about the corruption. It says, now the earth was corrupt. Um, the, the best southern word I can think of is uh, spoiled or ruined. Word is kind of what we'll say. So you ever buy some chicken on Monday and say, you know what? By Wednesday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook this chicken. I'm going to do something with this chicken. And by Friday, you look at that chicken, and it ain't color chicken no more. And so it's spoiled. It's, it's turned. It's bad. It's corrupt. And you don't want to use it anymore. Well, that's exactly what God is saying. It is corrupt. It is ruined. It's not good for anything anymore. And so he points that out. He says, it is ruined. They have ruined the world, and I'm going to ruin them. He uses the same word, what they have done to the world is what he's going to do to them. They have destroyed the world, and he's going to destroy them. God makes it abundantly clear that not only is he unpleased, but he will have his revenge. And so it has gone to ruin, and he will ruin them. The punishment fits the crime. They have destroyed everything, and he is going to destroy everything. It is even. It is, it is, it is right. When he describes their sin, what it actually is, the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement, yes, I'm reading a definition, of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate and often making use of physical violence and brutality. We're not talking about somebody running a scam. We're not, we're, not talking about, we're not even talking about things like some of the things that we see today. We're talking about absolute violence. If I'm strong enough to take it, I will take it. And I don't care what it costs you. We're talking about evil, pure evil, evil incarnate. That's what was going on in this world at this time. And so God had determined that the end of all flesh would come. It was time to end mankind. And so that's what he says. So now God told Noah how to build this ark. Now this ark is incredible. Incredibly impressive when you think about it. So in, in measurements that we might understand, it's going to be roughly 440 feet long. Um, so that's more than a football field. That's like a football field and a third. Um, when you think about the width, it's 73 feet wide, 44 feet high. Being a history teacher and having some interest in, in things and when things develop, uh, one of the things I thought about was a bilge pump. Um, he talks about a skylight. He talks about several decks and things like that. And, you know, Archimedes, for the Greeks, he developed something. They called it the Archimedes screw. And somebody had to spin the screw, and it basically routed water back out of the hull of the boat so that it didn't sink. You know, if you have too much water in the boat, and not, you know, more as much water in the boat as you outside the boat, you're not going to be floating. And so I just kept thinking about that. And, and I wonder if... If Noah made one of those, how did he get the water back out of the hole of the boat? I'm just really curious about things like that, and you know, maybe one day I'll have some answer about that. But the way that God describes it, it's going to have three decks, there's going to be a side door, there's going to be like a top cabin type thing, there's going to be a skylight. Like, God gives him the exact directions of how to do this. The wood that he uses is gopher wood, which we cannot identify. It must have been long, straight trees. Um, he talks about using pitch to kind of caulk all the gaps between the pet planks. I mean, it's how you would build a boat. Now, when you imagine the ark, don't imagine a ship like we would think with like a V bottom. Imagine a barge with a flat bottom. And that's most likely what it would have looked like there. Um, and so it definitely was something very interesting to see. There are two times that the Bible uses that same word that's translated ark for us here in Genesis chapter 6. And then also in the Exodus story, what Noah's mother, or what Moses' mother, those two, when what Moses' mother puts 
Moses in. It's basket. The same word. The word ark is used. And so God puts, or, or, or his mother puts him in an ark. So that's two times um, that the fortunes of, of God's people floated on the water in what we would call an ark. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. So in contrast with what God's going to do to all mankind in them, uh, God is going to confirm his covenant with Noah, which makes us believe that he has already had a covenant with Noah. He's already had a promise in a relationship with Noah. He's going to confirm that covenant. Um, he is going to use Noah to save male and female of every animal, bird, all those things. Uh, he is going to use that at the divine command. Noah stocked the ark with food for all the animals and the, the few humans that he was going to take. But also he did exactly as God ordered. That's another one of those really short verses or, you know, that, that whole point is very short. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him to do. Another short verse, but incredibly profound. How many of us can do all that somebody commands us to do? I have started really enjoying cooking. How many of us can do a recipe and not change a single thing? Of hard to do, and then you're going to change something. You're going to tinker a little bit. You're going to add a little for flavor, or whatever. Instructions are hard, and and God told Noah what to do, and Noah did exactly what God told him to do. So once again, once again, to simply answer our question, sin is deadly. Our God is deadly serious about sin. That's important for us to know. God is deadly serious about sin, but He will always find a way to show mercy to His followers. What did God think about sin? Well, he wiped out the entire world that he had created. But what did God think about his followers? He made a way to save them. It would have been simpler to just blood out everybody and start over. But that isn't what he did. He did what he knew that he could do is show mercy to his followers. So when we read a passage like this, uh, it can sometimes be difficult to identify with the people and what's going on in a story like this so long ago. The world is so different. But when we look at it, in Noah's day, the whole world had turned against God. And so that's the way that the whole current of the world was going. And Noah was standing in that current, but not going with it. And we can identify with that, can't we? We can identify with the fact that the whole world is going one way. And if we want to be right with God, we've got to stand in that current, but stand in the way of that current. We cannot be going with it. We've got to stand against what's going on. It is very, very easy for us to accidentally partner with the world, to accidentally join with the world. Sin is sneaky. Righteousness is obvious, but sin is sneaky. It is easy for us to go the way of the world, to accept their values, to accept their thoughts on things. <laughs> You know, if you were to do a poll right now of Christians all over America and ask them, did they believe in the flood? Do they believe in a young earth? Do they believe that God created everything in six days? You probably, it might not be surprising, but you'd be disappointed by the results. Because the, the world overwhelmingly is telling us that these first 11 chapters are a myth. They're a legend. They're an origin story, but they're not real. But I would say that just like we need to set the record straight on how this world got here and how we got here, we need to make sure that we set the record straight in our heart. Commit the words of God into your heart. Make sure you believe them. Make sure that you live by them. I doubt we will live by the commands of righteousness that are in the word of God if we don't accept the evidence that he's provided of how he started the world, of how he created us. Because when we look at the flood story, 
You say, well, I believe the gospel, but maybe I don't believe some of this other. When you look at the flood story, it's the same message. Sin is terrible, but God's going to save us. When we look at the gospel, sin is terrible, but God's going to save us. So let's make sure that we commit all of God's word to our heart. Let us believe it and let us act on it. Because we can't just go with the flow. We must stand against the flow, the current of this world, because it is sinful. Let's have a word for Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time we gathered together. I thank you for your word. The very foundational chapters that we're studying right now tell us that you love us, that you created us in a special way, that you hate sin, but you will always find a way to redeem those that love you and follow you. When we look at Noah, we don't just see a man that, that told you that he loved you. We see a man that lived in a way that demonstrated that he loves you. He was righteous. He was blameless. He lived a life that honored you. Father, I pray that you remind us that we can't just say that we're Christians and claim that title but do nothing about it. We have to live for you. So give us the strength and the knowledge that it's going to take for us to acknowledge you in all of our ways. To ensure that all the things that we do, we can do for your glory. And I pray that not only will we do this privately, but when we live this way publicly, that we will have an opportunity, just like, just like Noah, to proclaim your righteousness. So many people will ignore us, just as in the days of Noah, but we have to proclaim it. That's what you've given us to do, and I pray that we will be able to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand in front of page 36. Mm -hmm.